Today on Radical Personal Finance, it's live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I am your host, and today we do Friday Q&A, live Q&A show. These shows are available to all patrons of the show. If you'd like to join one of these Friday Q&A shows and call in, like talk radio, go to patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. Each and every Friday here at Radical Personal Finance, when I can arrange the appropriate technology, which has been hard over the last few weeks, I do a live Q&A show. And uh, today, we're doing it a little last minute, so I don't expect too many callers, but at least we've got a show. It's been too many weeks without a Friday Q&A show. I love doing these shows every Friday. It's just that the scheduling and the technology sometimes gets in my way. If you would like to speak to me on a Friday Q&A show, I would love to have you here. You can do that by becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com, find Radical Personal Finance, sign up to support the show there, and I would welcome your presence. Lots to talk about today. Uh, it's been a great week. So let's go first to the phones with Brian. And Brian, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hi, Josh. Um, I had a slightly different kind of question uh, related to uh, your experience in Malta. Okay. Uh, we're going on a trip there this summer, and uh, we've got one day, it's about uh, 10 hours off the boat to, uh, to explore Malta. And I wanted to uh, hear from you on what you think um, some of the best things to do or spend a, spend a day there would be. <laughs> well, 10 hours is not. <laughs> it's, I was there for a month with my family. <laughs> so we had yeah, a little bit more than <laughs> we had a little bit more than 10 hours. Um, but I really enjoyed Malta. I was there primarily because I was interested in Malta's billing itself as a hub for um, for Bitcoin, for cryptocurrencies, etc. The University of Malta offers a master's degree in basically cryptocurrencies. And uh, Malta was seeking to be, has been seeking to be, it dubbed itself Blockchain Island and was seeking to provide kind of a regulatory regulatory environment for cryptocurrency. This is also interesting because Malta has a, uh, one of Europe's best it's not necessarily only, but it's certainly the the clearest one, citizenship by investment program. They have a residency by investment program. It's a wonderful tax haven. It's in the European Union. It's it's a beautiful Mediterranean island. And so I was there uh, kind of enjoying that, all that stuff, plus the, the personal side of things. So what I'll tell you is there, if you have 10 hours, you are going to simply choose to do basically some of the standard tourist things. Depending on where you're, you're coming in on a boat, is that right? Yes, it's going to be a, a cruise ship. Okay, so coming in on the boat, you will uh, most likely dock in right in downtown Valletta, which is this <laughs> beautiful historic walled city that's something like 400 years old. I don't remember exactly, but it's hundreds of years old. And so you'll be right in the middle of all of the stuff that can be done. Of course, you're going to be marketed to for all of the the, the things that you can do, the things that you can visit, etc. So Valletta is really, really neat. It, they've got a cool uh, Valletta experience or 
Malta experience, a neat theater there. You can go and tour the underground. It's not catacombs. It's basically the uh, so Malta back up a little bit. The history of Malta is really remarkable. Malta was founded by the it's a very old society, but must moat must <laughs> words aren't coming today. Much of the what you will see when you are there, the walled city of of Malta, was built by the Knights of Malta, which is a Catholic religious order that's very old. It's technically considered perhaps the oldest nation state in the world today. It is uh, actually a nation state, even though it doesn't have any land, any territory that it controls at the moment. And they built uh, most of the walled city of Valletta after a devastating war with the invading uh, Turks at, about 400 years ago. And so you can get, you can, you'll see that all around Valletta with this beautiful walled city. And then if you go to the downtown uh, Malta experience, they've got a great uh, video presentation, a wonderful theater. You can do a tour of where they had their hospital and all of the underground stuff that they built. That's really good and will give you a good overview. They've got a good video that'll give you a good overview of the history of Malta. So that is an excellent thing to do. Then, okay. the, then you have to decide, okay, do we want to go and swim and play, um, or do we want to go and do historic things? If you've got 10 hours, um, you can go to the Blue Grotto or the Blue Lagoon. If you're going to go to one or the other, I would encourage you to do the Grotto. It's cooler, but I don't know if what the commercial you know, how to get there and do it in the time that you have. The Blue Lagoon is really beautiful, but it's a, and there's a spectacular boat ride there, but it's basically just a beautiful Mediterranean lagoon. It's very pretty, but it's a beautiful Mediterranean lagoon. The Blue Grotto, on the other hand, has this cool series of caves that's pretty neat to see, and that is quite unique. Or you could go to visit some of the ruins. There's actually, I forget the name of it, but you can find it in the Malta guidebooks and whatnot, but they have the, they claim the oldest building built by humans um, there. And it's a ruins now that it's, it's protected and that's very accessible. And so you could do a tour to some of those old ruins there. And those are pretty cool to see, uh, especially if you have time to take the tour and go around and read all the signs. And then you can just, I guess, soak up the, uh, the walled city. They also have, I forget the name of it. They, there's, there's several old cities um that are are neat and so depending on the time that you have you can go and walk around uh, just a moment let me come up with the name all right it's um medina the city of medina and that's another really neat city it's another walled city uh, but it's pretty spectacular but it's very different than valletta so if i've got if i had 10 hours what i would do is I would go. I would start in Valletta. I would do the tour of Valletta. If I could fit fit them in, I would then go from there to the old ruins. Um, it's called the the megalithic temples, um, Hagar Kim, Manadra, and Tarkshin, uh, I think. And so, and then if I could, I would then spend a couple hours in the city of Medina and have dinner in Medina. We were there a couple times at, at kind of evening time and nighttime, and it's really spectacular. It's a city, there's no cars in it. It's an old walled city. And it, it gives you even more than Valletta because Valletta is, has a lot of cars and, and roads go, streets going through it. Of course, the streets are tiny, but Medina has no cars going through it. And so you can walk around the city, beautiful architecture, 
and you can really picture it's no different than it was 300 years ago and it's really spectacular and i love looking at old architecture and thinking about the design behind it so for example one of the things you'll notice about medina that i noticed i noticed all the the way the city was constructed uh, so an old so malta gets very very hot it's a mediterranean climate very dry in the dry season and so when you walk around Medina, you see, for example, that all the streets are tiny. And the streets are tiny because that maximizes shade. It keeps the streets cool, comfortable places to, to walk. It keeps them to be cool and comfortable places for vendors to sell things and to be a part of the city. And so if you do a little bit of studying on medieval architecture and how ancient cities are designed uh, to do without electricity, ancient cities are designed to do without um air conditioning systems and such, then it's a really neat experience to be in Medina. So th- that was, those would be my three. Okay. That, that sounds great because that's uh, a lot better than what, you know, the, the ship or some guidebook is going to tell you. So really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. And the other thing is Malta is uh, exceedingly small. And so you, you can, you can pretty easily, if you don't want to take a guided tour, you can do all that stuff yourself. Uh, so you can rent a car. Uh, they have several of the car services that you can rent hourly, right? Go to global, um, things like that. I rented a car several times. Um, and those are, those are cool. Um, you can use, uh, ride sharing. I don't remember. I don't think they have, yeah, they, they do have, uh, they have some local version. It's like Uber. I don't remember the name of it, but that's easy to find. And, or they have a bus system that will take you to all of the systems as well. And so the whole Island is connected by bus. So if you, it'll take more time. So if you have more time and want to spend less money, then the bus system itself will be uh, a great option for you. All right, we go on. Enjoy your trip. I really enjoyed Malta. I don't think I would want to live there. Um, uh, it's, I, I'm not so keen on the island thing. Uh, makes me feel claustrophobic. I got island fever pretty quickly, but I did enjoy my visit there. We go on to Nick. Nick, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Uh, thank you for taking my call, Joshua. I have a question regarding switching term life insurance. Um, the story is that two years ago, I decided hearing your show, I decided that I should get a, a term life insurance for my family, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. And I ended up getting a premium of $90 per month uh, for a 20-year uh, term at uh, $1 million. Um, And as part of that, there was a nurse that came to our home and you know took some blood and took some urine. Um, it's two years later now, and uh, I'm in a significantly better shape than I was then. So I'm wondering, you know, if I was to repeat this process, I would hope that I would get a significantly lower premium or maybe get the same premium, but for a higher coverage. Okay. Um, and I, I wasn't sure how to navigate the switching of term insurances. Yeah, super easy. So the first thing you can do is if you like the policy that you bought, then you can contact the, your agent and the company and ask for a reconsideration. And they'll have a system where you say, listen, I've got this term insurance policy. I'd like to keep it. Uh, would you be willing to do reconsideration on the policy? Is that something that you offer? Uh, they don't have to offer it, but many of them will uh, because they want you to keep the policy on the books. And so if you've had it for a couple of years, they know that if you've improved your health and you want to go, then there's a good chance you're going to go to some other company buy a new policy and replace their policy. So they would just assume you keep the current one, but they'll give you new reconsideration. So if they do that, they'll simply send out a nurse again. They'll do the whole medical exam again. They won't, you, they won't have to go, you won't have to go through underwriting all of the rest of the stuff. And then if mm-hmm. your markers and, and things have improved enough, 
then they'll go ahead and give you uh, a better, they may go ahead and give you a better premium and change your rating. And there's no downside. They can't take the policy away if it's gotten worse. Um, it's not going to go up. So there's no reason not to do that. Then mm -hmm. secondarily, all you need to do is contact, uh, if, if, if they don't offer reconsideration, or if you want to simply shop the marketplace again, which you should, you simply contact a life insurance agent. Uh, you explain that you'd like to get some life insurance. You explain that um, you're going to be replacing a policy because you got rated and you've lost weight and everything is better now. And then mm -hmm. you'll just simply apply for a new policy. Now, when you apply for the new policy, then that it will be technically what's called a replacement. That only matters to the insurance agent. It doesn't matter at all to you. You don't need to know about it. But the insurance agent will note the number of the policy that you are, the name of the company that you're replacing, and uh, you'll get uh, you'll get a replacement notice from the company that you're replacing, saying, "Hey, we uh -huh. want you to keep our insurance." And uh, then you have to just decide in terms of the money, when you go to actually apply for it, you can go ahead and apply for the policy and do like you did before, where you give them a first month's premium payment at the time of application. Uh, mm -hmm. And then they'll go ahead and you'll have basically two policies enforced simultaneously. Or if you want to handle the money basically perfectly, then you'll apply for the policy without submitting any, any premium payment. Uh, no consideration. So the contract will not be enforced because there's no consideration for the contract. Um, but then they'll do the underwriting, they'll approve the policy, and then they'll tell you the rate. And then if you like the rate and you wish to accept the policy, then you'll simply accept the policy, pay the first month's premium when you accept the policy, and then go ahead and cancel your other contract. Okay. So um, the, for the current insurance that I have, I pretty much just found it you know, via an ad on YouTube. It mm -hmm. was an online-only thing. Right. How would you advise me to put, if I need to go to the market, how would you advise me that I do that? Yeah, so I'll explain my answer and I'll explain why my answer is. First of all, I would contact someone whose primary business is life insurance. And the only okay. way that I know how to do that in the United States is to contact one of the big traditional uh, life insurance uh, companies. So the big ones in the United States would be uh, New York Life and Northwestern Mutual. Um, Mass Mutual would also work fine, and Guardian is, is acceptable. But New York Life and, Nor and Northwestern Mutual, more than any other insurance company, are dedicated to the traditional insurance system where they have their own agents, their own offices all across the country, and they're trained insurance agents. They start people with, with insurance. They're insurance special specialists. That's where their income comes from. Their agents are not limited to selling their policies, though. So if you, so for example, when I was an, was a, an insurance agent uh, at the time with Northwestern Mutual years ago, I would sell policies from Northwestern Mutual, and I would also sell policies from any other company that brokered their business, which is virtually all of them, except those big companies. And so if you just want a cheap term life insurance policy, that insurance agent can sell, you, sell it to you, a cheap policy from Banner or from Guardian or, or not Guardian, but uh, American General or Prudential or whoever happens to be the cheapest at that time, they can do that. And then they can also mm -hmm. sell you their company's flagship policies as well. The reason I say that is when you work with an agent like that, you actually speak to somebody who is an insurance agent who is incentivized to provide you with advice and service. 
Now, that means two things. It means, number one, they're incentivized to provide you with advice and service that will help them sell lots of products. But it also means they're incentivized to actually take a comprehensive look at your situation and give you um, knowledgeable input into, uh, into your situation and make product recommendations. You will not pay any more to actually have a relationship with an insurance agent like that than you do by going and responding to a YouTube ad for from termlifeinsurance.com. The way that those businesses work is they are contracted with the same uh, cheap term life insurance companies that all the insurance agents are contracted with. But what they mm-hmm. do is they have a transactional relationship with you where they're focused on simply having you, their sales funnel is different. They're focused on uh, your responding to an ad. And I simply don't think you get as good service when you're going to a phone bank and the phone bank is staffed by insurance agents, et cetera, but their model is much more quick quick selling rather than consultative planning selling, uh, which is what the traditional insurance agents will do. And so I'm biased because I came out of, the traditional system, but I don't see how anybody wins. If, if you have the choice between working with an insurance agent versus with a phone bank insurance agent, I don't see how you win in working with the phone bank insurance agent versus the traditional knowledgeable person who can take your case and, and give actual good advice on it. I think the only reason why you wouldn't do that is if you were scared of sales pressure or you got connected with some insurance agent that you didn't like. Um, in my experience, I don't think you should be really concerned about that. I never knew in my time, I never actually knew any quote unquote pushy insurance agents, uh, meaning that in, most professional life insurance agents understand that you you make your recommendations based upon the actual situation of the client. And I never knew any knew any personally who did any kind of pushy sales tactics or anything. Most of that was like the 1950s, right? The, the kind of the, the culture that existed many decades ago that today it's all consultative relational selling. So that's what I would do is I would call a, and the way that I would get it, I was, I would look in maps or whatever a maps app or whatever version of a directory is. I would find a local New York Life or Northwestern Mutual office, I would call and speak to the managing director and I would explain, I'm looking for an insurance policy, need a replacement. Could you refer me to one of your agents? And they'll just mm-hmm. simply refer you to one of their agents and that agent will be able to uh, to help you and work the process through with you. So if, if you were in my shoes, would you take this opportunity to move away from the online only thing and you know go the brick and mortar? Or you know, again, if you, if you were in my shoes? There's, there's, there is no moving away. So your online, so what is most likely happen? Do you, do you receive ongoing solicitations and advertisements from the firm to the email address that you registered with the firm that you worked with the first time? Uh, no. Okay. So that's normal. So what has happened, it, meaning, let me, let me be precise. I'm surprised that they haven't contacted you at all. That's bad salesmanship on their part. Usually they'll have some kind of drip campaign where they send you emails on an ongoing basis at least every few months. But the point is that you don't have any relationship with the insurance agency that sold you the original policy. They sold you a policy. Your relationship now is with the insurance company that holds that policy. Once they deliver the contract, the contract then is in force and their obligation to you ends. Now, you can call them and buy another policy, and that's fine to do. 
but um, you don't have any relationship with them. Uh, so there, there's, there's nothing to change. Um, you may be able to get their insurance agent to answer the phone, but it's unlikely to be the same insurance agent that sold you the policy. It's more likely to be just a representative to try to help you with the reconsideration. And probably what you'll do is just call the company directly. So that's another kind of difference between the, the, the online phone bank model and the insurance agent model is that if you can find a career insurance agent, then you'll have contact with that agent for an ongoing period of time. Most likely the agent, at least if they're good, uh, he or she will call you regularly. Um, I was always trained to call my client base every six months um, because basically we know that about every couple of years, people's insurance situation is going to change and there's new sales there for good clients, for upwardly mobile clients. Uh, and so the agent will keep in touch with you. The agent will have uh, time dedicated to actually handle your customer service stuff uh, himself and or he'll have staff members that will do that. And so that's where you actually do have a relationship is if you go with kind of a traditional insurance agency um, that services your your policies. So you don't have a relationship. All that will happen is the when you replace the contract, if it's been within two years of the time that you bought it, uh, when the contract gets replaced, then the agency will get a notification that this contract is being replaced, it's going out of force, and then you may hear from an agent if they have a replacement department, you may hear from an agent uh, who will reach out and say, hey, wait a second, don't replace the policy. But the, the facts that you're describing are exactly the kind of facts where you should replace the policy. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. It's actually pretty simple and it's their, it's their job. Insurance agents, that's what they're supposed to do is help you work your way through it. And good job. Congrats on uh, losing weight and getting your, uh, your blood markers and everything better. Scott, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Scott, you're up. All right, Scott, we'll come back in a moment. We go to 215 area code. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Two one five area code. All right. Can you hear me? Yep. Who's that? I mean, now I hold on. <laughs> yes, I can hear you. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but I'm trying to evaluate a new job offer and compare my existing situation with um, the potential new situation, and just trying to assign dollar values to the intangible things such as, you know, vacation days and health insurance. Um, and then other, I guess, more complicated issues like uh, my current stance in the company being a valued employee that would probably be one of the last people on the chopping block if there was a, you know, economic downturn um, compared to, you know, taking a year or two to get to that same status at a new um the new company. Mm -hmm. So just trying to figure out your process for evaluating all that. Well, before we go into any details, which we may need to discuss, I would say that if it's not a clear win for you, then I would, then I think the evidence is on staying where the situation is familiar. Meaning that if you actually have to sit down and try to calculate the value of the intangibles, then it's probably not that much of a compellingly better offer. It's unusual when people are facing this kind of situation. It's unusual to be in a situation where it's not a clearly better offer. 
So what would be some th- some examples of this? Well, so if you had an offer and you said, I don't like my job now, or I don't like my company, it's a bad boss or a toxic work environment or something bad, then this one other one might be better. You wouldn't be sitting down and parsing the value of extra days off. You would just simply say, hey, it's pro- it might be better. It's probably better and it pays me enough money. If there was a big jump in salary or a big jump in in your, you know, you're gonna, now you're going to have five weeks of paid vacation instead of two weeks of paid vacation, or you're going to be able to work from home six months a year, then it would be obvious. And so if it's not obviously better, then I think there are probably many more reasons to stay put than there are to move. That doesn't mean you don't change jobs. It means you stay put until you find something that's obviously significantly better, something that has a lot more potential or something where it's a clearer benefit to stay. Because when you have seniority, the the great thing about your current job is you know how everything works. You know what's expected of you. You've been trained already. You don't need to be retrained. You're high on the totem pole. You're, you're less likely to be fired super quickly in the coming recession. You're, you're, you're comfortable. You know where the boundaries are. There are a lot of reasons to stay put unless you find a really much better offer. So I would say the first question is, is, is it not, if it's not so, if it's not so so much better than why not stay where you are and then wait till you find a, a newer, better third option. Okay. Yes. All that, that makes sense. That, that would, I, if, if, if that makes sense, then I don't think we need to go much farther. Um, what I would say is here is my decision-making framework that I use in looking at decisions. The only time a decision is difficult is either when you have two equally good options or two equally bad options. Uh, So if you have two equally good options, then it's hard to know what's better. Or if you have two bad options, it's hard to pick between the bad options. But in that situation, that's when decisions are difficult. If you have a good choice and a bad choice, then the decision is not difficult to make. It's obvious you take the good choice. So it's only difficult to make if you have too good or too bad. And so what do you, what do, you do if you have either two good options, which it sounds like you do, uh, or if you have two bad options? As I see it, you have two strategies that you can employ. Strategy number one is you need to figure out a way to magnify the situation such that the options actually become quite differentiated. Let's say that you let's say that you have a good job working at a buggy whip manufacturer and you are being offered a good job working at an automobile for this newfangled horseless carriage that that's being invented. Well, you would have a hard time knowing what to do. You're like, listen, we're a really good buggy whip manufacturer. Um, but I've also got this good job available at the horseless carriage company. So what should we do? Well, you you focus in and you find some way to magnify the benefits. And you you in that situation, you look at it and say, you know what? I think people are going to be going for these horseless carriages. I think the buggy whip job is about to be destroyed, and I'm going to choose something where there seems like it's on the it's, it's the it's the company of the future. Uh, or you figure out some other benefit to to focus in on, and so you have to analyze those two options and you have to magnify 
or minimize some feature until the, until you can clearly differentiate between the jobs. Because once you can magnify a feature or minimize a feature to where you can clearly differentiate, then the decision will be easier for you to make because you'll say, this, this, it's actually job B, that's a much better position because I now see that job B offers me entry to a growing company or it offers me the ability to join an international firm or, or something like that, okay? So that's strategy number one is magnify the difference between the companies. Strategy number two is find a third choice. If you are looking at two good options or two bad options and you really think it through and you really analyze it and you just can't compellingly differentiate them, yeah, they're, they're still close, then I think your only real practical solution is to find a third option. And so you say, let me not choose one of these, but rather let me go and find a third option, something I haven't yet thought about, something that's gonna give me a much, much better option. And when, when you bring in a third option, then you need to bring in a really good third option, then your decision is obvious. So that's my decision-making framework that I use, and it sounds to me, based upon what you're saying, without asking any clarifying questions, you have two good options, but you can't really differentiate between them. So either you magnify something to where it become ob becomes obvious that you should stay or obvious that you should go, or you just simply stay because it's easier for you to stay now and then go and find a third job offer and spend another six months or another year working on it until you bring in a really attractive job offer. Okay, yeah, that, that gives me a lot to think about. Um, and <laughs> I guess I can't really completely compare them yet because the, the second, the actual offer is still floating out there. It hasn't reached me yet. So um, I'll take all that into consideration when comparing the two. And hopefully it's an easy comparison. Right, right. And I want to make very clear that your analysis should involve you choosing the things that are important to you. Uh, and it doesn't matter. It, money is one thing, but it's not the only thing. Maybe the fact that your commute with job A is 10 minutes and your commute with job B is 45 minutes, that may be a compelling enough thing for you to magnify. But look at the offers, and then if, if it's not obvious to you which you should choose, then redo the analysis, and if it's still not obvious, then sit tight and wait for a third option. All right, we go to 507 Area Code. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Josh. Can you hear me now? Sounds good. Yes. Awesome. Thanks. I'm Scott from Area. That was having some issues. Um, so uh, my wife and I are regular tithers to our church. And we also have money that is in an investment account that's for several purposes, kind of five to 15 years out, not retirement related. I was thinking the other day about, um, because they can take, accept stock donations. And what I was wondering is if every couple of years I take my gains that uh, are, have appreciated on my stocks, donate them to the church at the um, appreciated value and then simply just buy them back to increase my cost basis uh, for whenever I do want to sell them for their intended purposes, uh, I would have to pay less taxes on that. Um, I know that there's uh, donor advised funds and stuff like that, but I kind of thought it might kind of cut out the middleman. I was wondering if you had any thoughts or suggestions on that tactic. Let me look and just think about for a moment, the wash sale rule and make sure 
Yeah, it wouldn't apply because you're not selling at a loss. You're, you're gifting at a gain. I think it's a good idea. So let's just begin with background philosophy to set the table. So number one is, yes, if you're going to give on an ongoing basis to a an organization, and if that organization is organized in such a way that your contribution is a tax-deductible contribution, then it makes sense to save as much money on taxes as you possibly can. And so what you're describing is, I have appreciated securities, I can gift those securities to my church, my church will then sell the securities at market value, and I will receive a tax deduction for the full market value of those securities. And then on the backside, I'll just simply go out and purchase those securities at the current price, and I will get, uh, and I'll, I've, I've given, instead of giving cash, I've given securities, but now I have a higher cost basis in my stock so that when it continues to appreciate, I'll have saved some money because I gave it. I, I'm not, it's an, it's an interesting question. I have not, nobody has suggested that tactic to me and I have not thought of it myself. And so my, my worry is in all the years that I've been doing this, why haven't I thought of that before? And why hasn't anybody asked me about that before? So is there something that I'm missing? Is there some rule that I'm missing? But I can't think of why there would be a rule on that. The wash sale rule is, of course, the first thing that you think of. But the, the focus of the wash sale rule is if you sell a security at a loss take a, take, and then to take a deduction on the loss and then immediately buy the security back, that, that's what the wash sale rule covers. What you're describing, um, I don't see how it would apply. Uh, I don't see how there would be any problem. You can, you can gift any asset that you want to gift to a charity. And the rules, especially with a publicly traded stock that has a clear value, those rules are ironclad, crystal clear, no problem whatsoever. And you can buy a security anytime you want. And so you're not actually rebuying the same shares. You're not dealing with anything with private companies. You're not getting anything. It's just a straight, you're just simply giving away some of your stocks and you're buying more stocks. And so I can't see any law that that would violate or any problem that that would violate. And I think it would save you money. So why wouldn't you do it? Um... I can't think of any law it would violate, so I don't see any legal reason. I think the only reason practically that you might not do it would simply be, is your church equipped to handle that? Right. If you go to a little country congregation where there's a part-time pastor and 42 congregants, then gifting them shares of stock is probably not something that's actually a blessing to them. Um, but on the other hand, if you go to a large megachurch where there's a sophisticated financial operation and they're uh, accustomed to dealing with large gifts, then gifting the stock directly and then them selling it, yeah, they're, they're equipped for it. So that's the only reason I can think of why you wouldn't do it, and you can judge that for yourself. Yes, and I do know I've already talked to the finance person there and that they've got forms and stuff already set up for that. Great. So they are capable of accepting stock donations. Uh, it makes me, I just had that relevant, uh, revelation the other day. And so I just like, wait, why didn't I think about this before? Right, right. Um, but so that's kind of assuring <laughs> that uh, right. you, haven't been, <laughs> you haven't been asked. And yeah, I know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with capital gains harvesting. Yeah. For, for kind of, um, which uh, when we've had lower income, I've, I've been able to do. So it's kind of the same concept as that, except yeah. instead of forcing a taxable event at a 0% capital gains, 
I'm just able to, to donate it. So, um, cool. I was just curious if there's anything obvious that I was missing and, um, much like you, it seems like a, a good idea for, um, funds I'm already going to be, be donating and totally money taxes. Totally agree. Yeah. I'm well, you, you feel silly. Like I'm the dumb, I, I feel like the dumb dumb. It's like, why have I not <laughs> consistently thought of that? And, and you're right. It's no different than, uh, than just a variation on capital gains harvesting, which of course is a, a long run, a long and honored uh, tradition. So I think, I think probably the reason it's not more widespread is simply that the actual ownership of stock is actually low, is pretty low. Uh, meaning that Americans own shares in publicly traded companies, but those shares are generally in mutual funds and those shares are generally held inside of retirement accounts. The number of people who actually own publicly traded securities that are not in mutual funds and that are not in retirement accounts is is pretty low. And so uh, I think it's just – so I – that's probably why it's not more widely talked about. But I will be stealing the idea and adding it to my uh, to my repertoire of little tax tricks. So thank you for the idea. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. And I appreciate your time and all of your content. My pleasure. We go to 302 Area Code. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi there, Joshua. Uh, this, is, this is Luke. Luke, uh, welcome. Thank you. So I have been considering for some time uh, leaving uh, leaving my job to pursue for a period of time, three, maybe six months, pursuing some personal projects, both just creative in nature for my own and my own enjoyment, but also some that would be um, uh, personal business projects. However, I, <clears throat> this is a question about uh, a timing and the and the uh, economy that we're in right now. Uh, if we were in a normal a normal um, time in the economy, I would feel totally comfortable just leaving my job to do this uh, for, again, three, six, maybe more months um, with the savings that I have. Um, I'm wondering, given uh, thing, the things going on in the world right now and with, uh, with our economy right, economy right now, um, whether you think that would be a bad time to leave stable employment. Uh, without without uh, expecting that yeah. I'm going to have a, a fruitful endeavor, you know, coming forth in three to six months from this. Tell me about your financial obligations. Are you supporting family members, loved ones? Uh, do you have on, high ongoing obligations, or are they pretty modest? Uh, they're, they're very modest. I, I'm I'm single. I, I don't have any explicit obligations to anyone. So then, in that scenario, without even digging into the details, I would say, yeah, go ahead and quit. Um, and I'll give you my framework as to why I think that, but I don't think that if you're a single kind of healthy guy with, with few obligations, no big liabilities, um, you're not, you don't have seven children in private school, et cetera, then I think it makes all the sense in the world to just go when it's best for you. Because I think that your options are, are very many in that situation, Number one, there's always need, there's always work. So you need to analyze your career and ask yourself, how resilient am I? The people, so a couple of, well, let me help you with this. Do you have a college degree? Yeah. Do you have specialized skills in areas that are in demand? Uh, part, well, part of the issue that I've had is that I have, I have a liberal arts degree. 
I have a, I'm a, a somewhat technically inclined mind, but the work that I've been doing is a, uh, a, a consulting job where a lot of the, the knowledge I've built up uh, over the few years I've been working is in an area I don't care to continue in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think I, I, I could go back and get uh, a similar job again, but it wouldn't be event necessarily advancing my career in a direction I want to go. Yeah, I'm not going to belabor the analysis. I think you should you should just go with your original plan. And the reason is simple. We don't actually have any idea of what's going to happen to the economy in the coming you know months or years. Uh, I think there's every reason to think that a recession is likely. Right? There's every reason to think that a recession is likely. There's every reason to think that inflation is um, is uh, significant. Uh, and and unlikely to change in the short term. I think there's every reason to think that the world is in a very precarious place right now with regard to supply chain disruptions. I think that um, forecasting global famine over the coming year or two is not a crazy forecast. All of these things concern me. But for each and every one of them, we can argue the other side. And so if you were you know, again, if you were supporting seven children in private school and you needed to feed them and you didn't have money, then I would think it would be, my answer would be different. But if you're a young, single, capable guy with a college degree, statistically, it's unlikely for you to be without options. The people who get hurt the most in recessions, you go back to the 2008-2009 recession, the unemployment rate among people with a college degree was exceedingly low. And people with skills and with with self-awareness and with work ethic, they, they were never out of work. It was unskilled laborers, people without a college degree, people without technical skills, people without kind of self-awareness about their marketability in the job market. Those are the people that got destroyed. And so if you don't belong to that class of people, then you're, you're st- statistically, the odds are pretty high and pretty um, doable of your being able to be employed. In addition, you should consider your flexibility in terms of where to live and how to live. And so if I have seven children in private schools, then I'm, my job search is going to be confined to the city where I live, the town where I live. But if I'm a single guy and I can pick up and move across the country to take a job opportunity, then there's virtually it's almost inconceivable that you wouldn't be able to have work. And if you're the kind of guy who's listening to a show like this— uh, to the point where you actually sign up and you call up to ask me a question, it's just simply a marker of your intelligence, your dedication, et cetera. You're not a typical, you're not a typical, you're not a loser. It's not possible for you to be, to, to, to listen to a show like this and be a loser or be uneducated or be, you know, ignorant in some way, in, 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 not in some way, but you're not, you're not the kind of person who's going to struggle with that. And so, you have these so what we have is we have these abstract fears about macroeconomic things that we can't control and yet those abstract fears are always going to be there so i think that um i think that you should just ignore those things and you should do what's right for your life you have savings you have money and what you might do is you might simply say maybe 6 months ago my plan for my 6 month sabbatical was to go and live high on the hog i was going to go and rent a penthouse apartment in Singapore and live there and spend lots of money. But I also have been thinking about doing this thing that was cheaper. You just might choose the cheaper thing now and then maybe save the six months in the penthouse in Singapore for the future. Um, you might also put uh, a, 
You might also choose to have a little bit bigger of, an, of a reserve fund than you otherwise would. Maybe you said, I was willing to spend down to $10,000 of savings before, but now I want to make sure that I keep 20000 in the bank or whatever number your, yours is because it gives me a little bit more of a cushion. And then finally, what I would do is I would think about what I would do if I went totally broke and if I couldn't find a job. So if I couldn't find a job and I actually ran out of money, what would I do? Would I um, move into mom and dad's garage? Would I buy a van and convert it and live in my van? Would I go and volunteer on an organic farm in Mexico for a few months waiting? Like, what would I do? And just think about that. And I think that's good enough in terms of a planning perspective. So two other things to consider would be, can you get laid off? So one of the strategies that is always worth considering is if you did think there was a recession and if your timing is not necessary, is there some way that you could engineer a layoff from your company instead of just simply quitting? It's not possible at all companies in all places, but it's one of those things where if you could engineer a layoff with multiple months of severance, unemployment, income, et cetera, then, and then take your sabbatical, that's maybe worth doing. And if you're fairly flexible on when you could take it, then watch things. Look at your industry and say, do I think that layoffs are coming? If, it's not, if, it's, if you don't know that right now, then I would just say go, and, go with what's right for you, uh, for, for you now. And then... Um, the second thing, second thing I have forgotten. So I guess I'll just share my story. I got laid off right in June of 2008 and it was totally out of the blue. And I often wondered about that because I had been planning to leave that job in January of 2009. I had been saving money, but I had been that my company had given me extra money for a college scholarship. And so I felt this sense of obligation that I was going to work there for at least a year. And so I was kind of sticking it out. And I did not like my job. I did not like my work. And so when I got laid off in June of 2008, it felt like freedom. It felt like the prison doors had opened and I was out and it was I was happy about it. But what I vividly remember is I was I was going I remember driving to Miami and doing insurance classes to get my life insurance license when I was listening every day, I would listen to NPR um, and I would listen to Marketplace and to, to uh, I don't even remember, it's been so long since I listened to NPR, the evening show that they did, All Things Considered. And I would listen and I would just hear the, the world was falling apart and the whole financial world was just collapsing. And here I was, I had been laid off. I was going into a commission only, zero salary business. And I thought to myself so many times, like if it had been September of 2008 and it was October 2008 and November of 2008, would I have had the guts to quit my job? And the answer is probably not. I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do it. And yet I was so glad that I had been done with the job and I, I've just thought of that over the years and I've realized I should have had the guts to do it even if it looked like the whole world was falling apart for all the reasons that I've just articulated to you. I had virtually no financial responsibility. I had plenty of money saved. I had plenty of characteristics that would allow me to get any job at some point when I wanted one. And so I, I it would have been the wrong decision to have allowed these external circumstances, even if it was one of the most spectacular financial crises in a very long time, it would have been the wrong decision for me to allow that to control my actions and my life plan. So that's the, f the lens through which I'm giving you the advice to say, uh, 
as long as those conditions are there, then I think that you should just go with your plan A and deal with the economy as it develops. Because the, the thing that you don't have in abundance in life is time. And so there's always going to be a reason not to do something that you've decided you want to do. And I think it's much better to get in the habit of deciding what you want to do and then doing it. And that's a much more important, productive, personal habit than is, oh, I'm going to wait and see if the, the circumstances get better for me to live my life the way I want to live it. Very fair. Thank you for the, <clears throat> the affirmations the, uh, and the advice. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be living in fear or, uh, unnecessary worry about the future. <laughs> There's always something <laughs> to worry about. So at the, maybe, maybe buy a, buy a tent, buy a, a couple of buckets of wheat. So at the worst case, you have a roof over your head and food to eat. I think you are good to go and enjoy your, uh, enjoy your time, enjoy your sabbatical and enjoy your personal projects. And with that, we come to the end of our Q&A show. Thank you so much for being here. I was glad we had a bunch more callers than I expected. Um, if you would like to be on next week's show, make sure you go to uh, patreon.com slash radical personal finance and uh, sign up there and you'll be, we would welcome you to next week's Q&A show. And then in addition to that, remember that uh, my brand new uh, Bitcoin course, bitcoinprivacycourse.com, that has been the hit, uh, major hit. So I get such great feedback from that. And so I'd love to have uh, more students in it though. And I think this is such a wonderful time to be buying Bitcoin, a wonderful time to be buying it right, buying it privately, owning it privately, and using it privately. So if you are interested in how to do that, go to bitcoinprivacycourse.com. I look forward to seeing you there.